0: Welcome now to Axis, Utah. Matt Lewis is a prominent young conservative voice. His book is Too Dumb to Fail. It's an impassioned argument that to stay relevant, the Republican Party must look beyond short-term electoral gains and recommit uh, to historic conservative values. Uh, As we navigate the 2016 presidential season, Lewis has an urgent message for fellow conservatives. Embrace wisdom, humility, qualifications, and inclusion, or face extinction. And as a part of an ongoing series of uh, episodes in which we check in with uh, prominent uh, political voices, Uh, We check in with Matt Lewis today. I sat down with him for conversation when he was on the Utah State University campus recently to address the Foxley Forum, presented by the USU Institute of Politics and Government. His talk then was titled, Can the Republican Party Return to Its Intellectual Roots? Matt Lewis is a senior contributor at the Daily Caller, a CNN political commentator, and the author, as I mentioned, of Too Dumb to Fail. Uh, he also serves as contributing editor for The Week, regular columnist for The Daily Beast, Roll Call, and The Telegraph, and he has appeared on many other outlets. And it was my pleasure to uh, to sit down with him in the last uh, couple of weeks. So this was before the uh, Utah Coxes, uh, or of course the Wisconsin primaries, which happened uh, yesterday. But uh, conversation still very relevant. Here is the first part of my conversation with uh, Matt Lewis. Let me start with your book, Uh, Too Dumb to Fail. Um, The
1: title, intriguing title, great title. What do you mean by the title? So it's, you know, if if you're watching a debate and somebody says something crazy or stupid and they go up in the polls, that means they're too dumb to fail. And it harkens to the, there's a book called Too Big to Fail and a movie, Too Big to Fail. And that was about how financial institutions had perverse incentives to take on risks. And then if something went wrong, we the people would have to pay the price. And I see a similar phenomenon on the right right now, where you have political commentators and pundits and candidates who have a perverse incentive, uh, as they called it in Too Big to Fail, a perverse incentive to say or do controversial or stupid things. When that happens, they go up in the polls, they sell more books, they get more buzz, but the conservative movement collectively suffers. Um,
0: I was going to ask for examples. Let me ask you about the person I was thinking of, Donald Trump. That, would he be an example of this?
1: I think he is, yeah. And he's, he's uh, the most timely example. Um, again, I think it's not just politicians, it's certainly um, pundits and commentators. But Trump's a prime example. You know, when he comes out and says we should ban all Muslims coming to America, he gained from that. I mean, it's, you can't argue he went up in the polls from doing that. But in terms of the Republican Party's brand and, and conservatism, uh, it's sort of a tragedy of the commons problem. He benefits personally, but the brand takes a hit. Uh, would
0: define conservatism for me as, as as you see it. This is straight. Line. I've seen you write, you know, writings of yours. Uh, you take Edwin Burke to William F. Buckley. Is Is that the... Yeah, it's really hard.
1: It's really hard to define conservatism. And I think that's one of the problems because it means different things to different people. So my version of conservatism, for example, is solutions oriented. It believes that uh, that conservative philosophy can lift the most people up, bring more joy, more prosperity to more people. And it's a belief that we can grow the pie you know, that more people equal more ideas and we can grow the pie and everybody can be better off. There's another version of conservatism that Donald Trump, uh, I think, believes in, which says, no, we're fighting over this pie. You know, there's a limited pie. (laughs) There's one small pie. And if you have a piece, then I don't get a piece. So we have to fight to keep our pie, um, which is a weird analogy, but I think there's some some truth to it. Uh, It's hard to define conservatism. I would say that it's, Uh, conserving the good things about Western civilization. But even there, we can argue about what those good things are and how we should go about conserving them.
0: There's been a a movement, a a growing trend of um, a purity test. Um, And, well, we had a famous example here in Utah. Uh, Senator Bennett was ousted at convention by all appearances for the sin of trying to reach across the aisle. Um, And somebody more... Pure mm-hmm. was was selected in his his place as Senator Mike Lee. Um, that's just one example in Utah. Do you, do you see that as a problem, problematic trend?
1: Interestingly, the trend now is the opposite. The trend with Donald Trump is that ide- ideology and orthodoxy don't matter at all. you know. So we went from this we've gone in extremes. We went from the rules supposedly were you had to be a hundred percent, you know, pro-life, anti-tax, pro second amendment. Um, or else you were cast out and you were an apostate to now, eh, the rules don't, nothing really matters, you know. And so Donald Trump, for example, um, is for single payer healthcare, you know. Donald Trump wants to, or, or depending on what day you ask him, believes that we should be subsidizing Planned Parenthood. Donald Trump had Hillary Clinton at his wedding. So he's broken all the rules. So, um, you know, look, I, I think that it's important that conservatives be conservative and stand for something. I also think it's important that we can occasionally work across the aisle and compromise when we're not compromising on principle, but we're compromising uh, appropriately. Um, having said that, the interesting thing is that those, the, the part about uh, uh, about these litmus tests, they're out the window now. Trump has basically said it doesn't matter. It, it, this is a crazy time to be watching politics.
0: What is the best case scenario in the general election? Say, you know, stipulate that Donald Trump looks like he's going to get the nomination, goes up against Hillary Clinton for conservative like yourself. What's the best case scenario?
1: Well, I mean, at this point, there is no good. There's only less bad. There's no good scenario. It's just at least bad scenarios. So first, I would say it's possible Trump doesn't win, you know. He could be deprived that nomination at the convention if he doesn't get 1,237 delegates. You could end up having Paul Ryan, the speaker, (laughs) become president, right? That might be the best case scenario. But even there, you'd probably have rioting in the streets of Cleveland, and Donald Trump's uh, supporters would would leave. There's a real debate over whether or not it's conservatives like myself. There's a real debate over whether or not it's better— for Hillary to win or Trump to win, if that's the choice, mm. and I I'm torn on. No, in good conscience, I wouldn't vote for either of them, but just as an intellectual exercise, I think on one hand you could argue that Hillary's better because look, she's a liberal. She's we know who they are. She is what she is. She's not my cup of tea, but if she does something bad, she gets blamed for it. The problem with Trump is he does something bad, and I get blamed for it mm. and we get all the his baggage and the, the the he would tarnish and redefine what it means to be a conservative. The problem with that theory is Hillary Clinton will probably get three or four Supreme Court justice picks, mm. and that's going to be three or four liberal justices that will serve uh, a life term and uh, would redefine you know the court for a generation or more
0: mm. do you do you think there how likely do you think a third party run but uh, it's conservatives who are talking about a third party run. Do you think that's likely?
1: I think it's possible that there will be a uh, a last minute desperation move to have a third party candidate. I think more or less it would be um, just a way for someone like me to uh, in good conscience have somebody to vote for. I don't think they're going to be able to muster the logistical uh, the the ability to actually do it in a way, in terms of meeting, uh, you know, deadline, ballot deadlines to to get on the ballot um, and to run a run a campaign that, that it would take. So I, I don't see there's nothing that the I'll put it this way there's nothing that the establishment Republican that, that establishment Republicans have done this year that would lead me to believe they have either the fortitude or the competence to pull off something like that.
0: Mm. You think it's more likely that a number of conservatives will just sit this one out?
1: I think that could happen. Some of them will probably vote for Hillary. Some of them will sit it out. And like I say, maybe there will be some sort of a pro forma third-party candidate um, that, that you can just vote, have somebody to vote for, even if they can't win. Um, <clears throat> but a lot of conservatives and a lot of Republicans will end up voting for Trump. Um, in some cases, I think they'll be co-opted or seduced by him. People like Chris Christie already have been. Um, and I think it's possible that Trump could do this if he picks someone like a John Kasich as his running mate. You could start to see Republicans say, well, I don't like Trump. I don't like what he represents. But he's better than Hillary. And, you know, he's starting to pivot to the center. And he did pick John Kasich as a serious governor, kind of a moderate to conservative Republican. So let's just hold our nose and support Trump. Hmm.
0: Um, I believe in the book you you talk about the you know, the Goldwater Revolution. And of mm-hmm. course, Goldwater famously went down to a pretty serious defeat, but then later on, uh, I think conservatives like yourself feel that that produced Reagan right. in, in the end. It's not an exact analogy, but do you think that it would be better for the conservative movement if uh, Trump went down to a landslide defeat?
1: It could be. Um, I, I'm very philosophical about these things. I, I believe, you know, pray as if it... Well, work as if it all depends on you. Pray as if it all depends on God. So every election, I think you should work as hard as you can to elect the person you believe to be the best. But then you also have to realize, you know, that um, sometimes things happen for a reason. And sometimes there are uh, unintended consequences or things that we can't even see. And I mean, I'll just give you another example. Right. So if I were alive in 1976, I was born in 19. 19- I was alive in 1976. If I were voting in 1976, I would have probably been, uh, you know, once Reagan went down, I would have been like, well, we should, let's vote for, let's vote for Ford, right? Ford's better than Jimmy Carter. Well, without Jimmy Carter, maybe you don't get Reagan. So, you know, at in 1976, on November 1976, on election day, it seemed depressing. It's like, wow, we've lost, and you're in the, in the wake of Watergate, and, you know, we lost to this peanut farmer, How you know, and he's going to, he turns out to be a horrible president, of course, and there's melays and there's, you know, hostages taken. All those were bad things, of course, but you don't get Reagan, maybe, unless you go through those bad things. So I'll be philosophical and say, America's resilient. It survived a lot of things in the past. And who knows what the future may hold, even if somebody like Trump gets elected. Hmm. Where do you...
0: Where do you place the, I guess, the center of the problem? A lot of people talk about one one particular uh, uh, move, not movement, but trend, has been safe districts. It's yeah. the loaded word to be gerrymandered. Um, uh, districts where an incumbent doesn't have to worry about the general election. What they have to worry about is a, is a challenge from the right or the left.
1: Yeah, I think that's one of the problems. Um, there's so many issues like that. There, there are these systemic issues. And then there are, like, technological changes. Um so, for example, you know, we have—I'll um, just give you, like, one example. It's, it's very consistent with the, uh, the, the the districting issue, which is that the Speaker of the House used to have all of this power, right? They used to have earmarks. They could reward their friends and punish their enemies, and now that's gone. And you have a system where uh, outside groups are now funding candidates. And so there's really not much—there's not much of an incentive to be a team player— or to go along with your team. Um, in fact, there's a more of an incentive to go against your team, Rate, go on radio, go on TV, go on Twitter and raise money. Uh, and and it, it's these are perverse incentives in many ways. So basically we get the politicians we deserve and we get the politicians that, um, that, 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 that our, our sort of system leads us to, that we get things that we reward. And we are rewarding a certain type of behavior, so it shouldn't be surprising that we're getting a certain type of politician who wants to capitalize on that. Mm
0: -hmm. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and we're hearing a conversation I recorded a couple of weeks ago with Matt Lewis, uh, who is a prominent young conservative voice. Uh, he visited Utah State University recently to address the Foxley Forum presented by the USU Institute of Government and Politics his talk was titled Can the Republican Party Return to Its Intellectual Roots we're talking about this extraordinary uh, 2016 presidential campaign season his book is Too Dumb to Fail we'll have more with Matt Lewis uh, coming up following a break later in the program we'll introduce you to a new commentator for Utah Public Radio Leo Gilbert will be giving us commentaries on food. We'll then hear her first commentary, and we'll be hearing from Gina Wickwar as well today. Thanks for listening to Access Utah.
2: This week on This American Life, David's dad was a really intense, literally, coach, like, scary intense. So David asked him about it. You, you know, you, you prefaced that question by saying,
0: I'm not really trying to put you on the spot. This is something we haven't talked about. You know, so let's wait till we have 10 million people on the radio yeah. that we can maybe talk about the time you try to bean me,
2: Dad, you know, literally. Yeah, good point. Not going to stop us this week.
0: Join us Saturday morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio. Support for the Utah StoryCorps project is made possible by our members and U.N.A. Basin Healthcare in Roosevelt, founded in 1944, celebrating more than 70 years of service, offering hospital, clinic, and pharmacy services, Details at UBH.org. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We are hearing from Matt Lewis, prominent young conservative voice. He is senior contributor at the Daily Caller, is a CNN political commentator, author of the book Too Dumb to Fail, how the GOP betrayed the Reagan revolution to win elections and how it can reclaim its conservative roots. He also serves as contributing editor for The Week. He's a regular columnist for The Daily Beast, Roll Call, The Telegraph, and he has uh, appeared on many other media outlets. Uh, Coming up later in the program, we'll introduce you to a new commentator for UPR, Lael Gilbert, who will be giving us commentaries on food. We'll hear her first commentary, and we're also going to hear from uh, Gina Wickwar. Right now part two my conversation with Matt Lewis. The Tyler, you broke Too Dumb to Fail and you talk about perverse incentives. Where do you see this going? It just seems like it's getting worse, not better.
1: Yes, I don't I don't aside from people accepting responsibility and leadership and standing up and saying, This ends now. I'm going to do the right thing for my country and for my party and for the movement. I don't see how it gets any better, because all the incentives are bad. If I am a, um, if I am a politician, if I am a commentator, I have a selfish interest in doing things that benefit me personally, but collectively hurt the party and the movement. I mean, think about you know, cable TV is a prime example. Um, there's an incentive to show Donald Trump all the time because he's good for ratings. That has consequences. You know, there's so many things that um, people are making money in the conservative movement. You know, uh, there's this great quote from Eric Hoffer: uh, Everything's. It starts off as a movement, turns into a business, and ends up as a racket. There are all sorts of people who are making money off of the conservative movement and the Republican Party being dysfunctional. So they have no incentive to fix this. It is a mess. Mm. And then, you know, the Democratic Party went through their time in the wilderness. 1968, they had the riotings in Chicago. They lost three consecutive elections in the 1980s before they finally kind of had their come to Jesus moment and went with Bill Clinton. So, you know, parties do go through these things and sometimes they come out the other side, sometimes they disappear. Mm. Um, but uh, right now, there, there's a lot of factors that are making that are sort of conspiring to give us Trump in the situation we're in. There's been a lot of talk about uh, is this a realignment? It happens, you know,
0: every 40 years, whatever right. X number of years. What's your best guess? Is this a
1: realignment or it could? Well, I think some of it is actually contingent on whether or not Trump wins. Because if Trump wins, you could have the Republican Party become a populist protectionist party. And you could actually have, it's possible that the Democrats would become more of a free market party. <laughs> I mean, they're having their own populist moment with mm-hmm. Bernie Sanders. Mm-hmm. Um, that the it, it, Hillary Clinton might be more of a hawk in terms of foreign policy and, and in terms of, uh, uh, of having a robust foreign policy compared to Donald Trump or even Ted Cruz, who, who have t- sounded more like doves, Uh, and have sort of criticized nation-building and adventurism. So it is possible that we could be seeing a Republican Party return to its populist roots, eschew free market uh, economics, and return to to its isolationist roots, and a Democratic Party becoming the alternative to that. Um, So yeah, we do live in interesting times.
0: What is the You've identified a problem here, of course. Is these perverse incentives powerful? Powerful, a lot of money to be made. Yeah. Then what's the solution?
1: How do we, how do you counteract that? Well, I think that there are um, there are a few things that I recommend. Um, one is it is personal responsibility. It's it's people. It's if you're Rush Limbaugh, instead of taking the ratings, if if Rush had stood up. And said from day one, Donald Trump's not a conservative. I think he could have strangled that baby in the crib before he turned into a monster. But Rush, I think, abdicated his responsibility, the sort of moral authority he has on the right. There aren't a lot of people who have the imprimatur to actually read somebody out of the conservative movement anymore, the way that Bill Buckley did when he uh, sort of cast aside the the Ayn Randers and the John Birch Society. Uh, So some of it's that. I do think though, I would say is there's so many trends that are cutting against Republicans right now, demographic trends, you name it. Um but there are there is also reason to be hopeful. Um some of the tech, things happening in technology I think are, are exciting. Uber, you know, the mm. you can order a car on Uber. You know, if you're a young lady living in a city and you order a car on your smartphone, I think you're a conservative, you know. Mm. Because you're not going to believe in onerous governmental regulation. Because guess what? Regulation tried to keep out innovations like Uber. You know, the taxi cab companies and governments tried to shut them down. This is entrepreneurial. It's an innovation, it's empowering. This same woman probably gets on her smartphone, uh, orders concert tickets on StubHub. Um, that's entrepreneurial. I don't think she's going to trust. A governmental bureaucracy to manage her retirement funds when she's probably managing her stock portfolio on her phone. So that's an example of the opportunity that conservatives have to reach millennials, to reach uh, urbanites, and it can happen if smart conservatism wins the day, not the cultural baggage where conservatives are people who look like Boss hog and ride around in trucks with rebel flags in the back, but real conservatism from Edmund Burke to William F. Buckley to Ronald Reagan. I would say another. Trend is the ultrasound, you know. Now, if you have a baby, you look, you see these pictures, and you can see it's it's not a fetus, it's a baby, and you put it on Facebook, which didn't even exist 15 years ago, and thousands of your friends can see it. So it is exciting, despite all the problems uh, that conservatives have. I think there's some reason for hope too.
0: Mm. In your blurb, uh, you you cite Richard Hofstadter and. uh his book, Ante- Intellectualism, market Life. That yeah. seems to frame today's, and it's, it's uh, I guess, I, I want to say gotten worse. It's gotten more exacerbated in today's climate, I think.
1: Yeah, and that's a good point, is that, that Donald Trump represents this anti-intellectual populist strain that really has always been with us. You know, our first six presidents were elite intellectuals, Washington, Adams, Jefferson, Madison, Monroe, and John Quincy Adams. Of course, John Quincy Adams probably the most prepared man ever to be president, who's ousted by Andrew Jackson, this strong man, authoritarian populist old hickory, uh, who who is very much like Donald Trump in many ways, you know. And then throughout history you get William Jennings Bryan, you get George Wallace, you get Pat Buchanan and Ross Perot. So when when times are down, when 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 people are frustrated and, and are afraid, uh, economic insecurity; they oftentimes will turn to populist demagogues. I do think that Trump is especially good at this. Um, he's a celebrity. He's incredibly rich. He's better at PR than Pat Buchanan or Ross Perot by far. And I think all these other trends are are sort of um, conspiring to help him. But, but this, but this is something that, in a way, it, it's not a new story for yeah, us. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's true. If you look back, yeah, yeah. Um,
0: what you you uh, talk mostly about, about your party, right? The, the conservatives, yeah. the, the the Republicans' the perverse incentives. I expect you would say exist for liberals and and for. Uh, I was trying to think uh, the analog for for liberal talk radio. I, I can't, it doesn't seem to work. Yeah. It doesn't seem to work. So before we get to that question, I'd, I'd be interested in your take. You do a podcast and then yeah. you're on on shows, you know. Um, wh- why do you think that is? A conservative talk radio seems to be gangbusters. You can make a lot of money. Yeah. Liberal talk radio, you can't make much money, it seems like.
1: Well, I think the reason it is, is that um, most, ra- most mainstream media is by default, liberal or liberal leaning. And so, um, you know, I'm a big fan of NPR and I listened to Terry Gross and I was on on point recently, you know, Um, but, you know, tend to be a little bit liberal leaning. And, And so I think that there's not the market, there's not the hunger for an alternative because the mainstream media is perceived to be liberal leaning. I think there is that hunger on the right uh, for the you know, alternative media, I think that's part of what it is um but i'm not you know, that's that I think it, it, liberals have tried to figure it out because they 've tried to start you know li- liberal rush Limbaugh's have yeah, not
0: yet air america right, yeah yeah have, have not succeeded the attempt yeah uh, so the so the where I was going with this is uh, uh perverse incentives um on on the left. Right, I'm, I'm sure you're. Well, I, yeah, I let's think see on both sides, right. I
1: think all these trends are bipartisan, but as I was mentioning earlier, I think that it, it sort of disproportionately has hit the right, and I think that's partly because the Democrats had their time in the wilderness in the '60s and the '80s, so they've they've gone through their time of introspection, um, and the Republican Party is just having their time now. It's an identity crisis. Even before Donald Trump came along, there was an identity crisis on the right, not clear exactly what we believe in. Part of it's that the, the glue that held the conservative movement together was the Soviet Union. As long as they were an existential threat, that was the reason that you could have con- social conservatives and fiscal conservatives and national security conservatives all sort of put their differences aside and join together. And ever since the collapse of the Soviet Union, the it started to become a bit unraveled. So um, the other thing too is, Barack Obama's the president. Uh, he has the bully pulpit and he can uh, instill some discipline on his team. There is no leader on the right. There there are no adults. Nobody's in charge. There's chaos. You could also argue that Democrats are by nature more uh, sort of prone to top-down, command and control, you know, do what you're told, and that, that Republicans are more uh, sort of rugged individualist and contrarian. I don't know if that's true or not. Some of them are authoritarian, as we've seen with Donald Trump, so they're not all contrarian. But Whatever the case may be, um, this is a bipartisan phenomenon. It's disproportionately hitting Republicans. But I would say when you see Bernie Sanders, clearly he's tapping into some of the same concerns that Trump is, right? Working class white Americans believe that the American dream has passed them by and somebody must have somebody must pay. You know, uh, guilt must be assigned. Right. And so you could blame automation. You could blame uh, immigration or you could blame globalization. And I think Trump blames immigration and globalization, and Bernie blames globalization um but they're all sort of blaming uh something right It's never our fault it's some there's some force that has caused this problem
0: mm-hmm. so in in the end, or um, you know maybe come clean for me here, you know bear your soul for me are are you pulling for a Trump defeat so that the Republicans can have a unifying time in the wilderness and uh, come out stronger. No, because
1: no, because I you know I think the essence of conservatism is epistemological modesty. It's knowing that we don't know, right? So I don't. It's knowing if you're conservative, you know that you can't have a comprehensive healthcare system because the world is too complex, you know, and that top-down command and control doesn't work. And so my philosophy is I always I, I root for the person that I think is the best, but Who knows what you know? As we were saying before, maybe I should have been rooting for Jimmy Carter in 1976 because if you don't get Jimmy Carter, you don't get Ronald Reagan. Um, So I cannot, in good conscience, vote for Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton. Uh, I'm just going to pray that whoever, whichever one emerges, uh, is the best for America's long-term future. Because it's a serious conundrum. I mean, if Hillary Clinton wins three, at least three Supreme Court justices. Uh, Which is a big, big deal. Lifetime appointments. Mm -hmm. If Donald Trump wins, it's like we own him. Mm -hmm. And all the negative baggage and all the horrible things he said um, would be uh, tied to Republicans, even though I don't. He's not even a conservative, in my opinion. It it doesn't even matter. Mm -hmm. Dude, I've often thought people should vote for president
0: more based on the Supreme Court, you know, because an average president might get two or three. And change the the face of the court. Yeah. Now with the current standoff between President Obama and the, and the Senate Republicans, do you think more people will?
1: I don't vote know. Vote with that in mind. I don't know. They should. It's one of the maybe three most important reasons to vote for a president because it out that that's their legacy. I mean, it, it outlives them. Um, I don't know if they will. The, the The fact that we are having this big debate over you know after the death of of Justice Scalia. Um, as if there weren't enough stakes in this election, mm-hmm. it just ratchets it up even more. Mm-hmm. I mean, the you know the next president is automatically going to get to pick, uh, you know, uh, a Supreme Court justice, and uh, it's a lifetime appointment. It's a huge deal. And like I say, as, as if there, as if this election weren't already so important.
0: Mm-hmm. Final question: I'd, I'd be interested in your take on this this standoff. So Republicans say they're. They're going to wait it out until the election. <laughs> President right. Obama said, hey, people elected me to, to make this yeah. pick. What, what do you think?
1: I was really surprised that President Obama picked Ju- Judge Garland because that's a Bill Clinton move. That's a move where you put Republicans on the spot by picking a moderate candidate that they um, that they might regret, that they may later, later regret not confirming, and, and squeezing them that way. That's not what Obama does. Obama usually... Because I thought he was going to pick uh, somebody who would be a minority and force Republicans to stall that nomination, thereby being able to accuse them of racism. And uh, so I thought that that's what Obama was going to do. I am pleasantly surprised that he actually went the other direction. Mm-hmm. Um, the truth is that uh, that Judge Garland is, you know, is probably as good as you could possibly imagine. A Democrat nominee, uh, a Democrat president nominating, but the problem is that you're trading like justice Scalia it's like trading babe mm-hmm. Ruth mm-hmm. for um i won't even mention a baseball player who doesn't match up to babe Ruth but it, it, it's it's you know justice Scalia was wasn't just he was like the conservative justice um and the idea of just allowing President Obama, who's already had, what, three, two, at least two, right, Uh, to have a third pick and to replace Justice Scalia uh, and change the face of the court for a generation. I don't blame Republicans for doing what they're doing. Um, They may later regret it, but I do not blame them uh, for holding out and and, and trying to, to see if they can get someone better.
0: To be continued this conversation on this extraordinary political season, that uh, was Matt Lewis, prominent young conservative voice. He is a senior contributor to the Daily Caller, a CNN political commentator, and author of Too Dumb to Fail. He visited Utah State University recently to address the Foxley Forum, presented by the USU Institute of Government and Politics. Our thanks to Matt Lewis and thanks to Neil Abercrombie, director of the USU Institute of Government and Politics, for connecting us up. We'll be continuing this discussion uh, ongoing with various political voices as we move along uh, in this extraordinary political season. Hope you'll stay tuned to Access Utah. A conversation with our new UPR commentator, Lael Gilbert, is coming right up. Next time on Living on Earth, Louisiana citizens take to the street to protest more drilling in the Gulf.
3: I mean, I've been working on this subject for 16 years, and we certainly have not had many moments where we've had hundreds of people in the street standing up to big oil.
0: The growing fight against federal oil and gas leasing. I'm Steve Kerwood, and that's next time on Living on Earth from PRI. Join us Wednesday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. This part of the program, we're excited to introduce a new uh, commentator to uh, uh, to Utah Public Radio, to Access Utah. Laila Gilbert is her name. Uh, Laila, you live in Logan.
2: I'm a longtime Cache Valley resident, yep. Uh,
0: coming up in just a few minutes, we'll be hearing your first commentary. Those will be part of, uh, of Access Utah, I think, uh, most on Wednesdays. Um, so... Um, I interrupted you with your introduction. So, longtime resident of uh, Logan, what's what's your back, educational background? First,
2: well, I have been writing for a long time. I um, have a degree in journalism, and then moved on to other things. I work up at Utah State University now, um, doing science writing, um, but my first love has always been writing and words. So,
0: um, and you are going to be focusing on food. Understand it. You you have a love of I guess all things food.
2: Yep, my love of words combines nicely with my passion for food. Mm-hmm. Um, I've always I've always found a lot of interest and joy in in culinary traditions. Um, I think probably that was developed most. I spent some time in Italy, and. Um, The Italian culture has a really rich tradition of um, food and the vocabulary around food and the ingredients and sourcing them, where they come from. Um, You may know that Italians um, eat very differently than Americans. They sit down for several hours in the middle of the day. They take a break from whatever they're doing and sit down, usually for about two hours, for lunch. And they talk about what's in front of them. they enjoy it, they criticize it, they um, talk about how it could be better, different experiences they've had i I think about you know, you hear a lot how the Inuit people have a hundred words for snow. Well, Italians have a hundred words for chew (laughs) 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 there that that just culture and vocabulary is really rich and spending time there really gave me a love you know when you spend so much time staring at your your plate you you really start thinking about the food and why you like it where it comes from and why it's interesting why you don't like it and um It it was an eye opening experience for me.
0: Hmm. That's where it began. Then You really got into food with absorbing the Italian culture and their
2: yeah, I think so. Their food culture. I think so. I I think definitely in Italy, I felt like I had a right to think that deeply about food. Hmm. You know, I've always my favorite book as a child was Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. I just I've always loved the sensory experience of food. So. It, it's it's it been a passion for me my whole life. Um, but in Italy, I really found the vocabulary for mm-hmm. it.
0: You said uh, in Italy, you, you, I guess you felt permission to think that much about food. Right. Was it the case in, in America before that experience that you maybe thought about a lot about food, but our culture doesn't...
2: Our culture doesn't
0: really go there, doesn't permit that.
2: Exactly. Well, we don't recognize it, I think. You know, and I'm guilty of this too, but for many of us, lunch is stuffing a fast food hamburger in our mouth when we're driving from one spot to another. It's it's not an event where in other places the meal itself is the event, the food is the event. And so, um I think in Italy, I started thinking about why we have that difference and what we gain and lose through those cultural differences.
0: i was just thinking you were talking about that. It uh, probably describes me a lot of meals. It's just something to get through. So I'm losing something is probably what you tell me.
2: For sure. I mean, if if you think, what did I have yesterday for lunch? A lot of us can't even remember. And um, I think that's a shame. I think we should remember what we're eating. We should know what it is. We should understand where it comes from. We should be able to cook it. We should be Mm. able to, that should, the cooking should be part of the experience. We should get our hands in the dough and, um, you know, not just taste the salt and fat going down our throat, but feel it and smell it and have a much richer sensory experience.
0: Mm. where the rubber meets the road here. uh, I think you have kids, right? Do you you, you involve them in and and what's that experience like? Are they will they follow you in, in, in getting their hands in the dough and, and oh, preparing the food? I
2: I hope so. You know you can't really control your kids, mm-hmm. but we'll see. Yeah, <laughs> I I thought a lot about that because um, my grown, growing up experience was different. Where my mom um, worked um, and got advanced degrees in education and was a very um, independent, liberated woman. But that meant Stouffer's lasagnas for us growing up. That's, mm-hmm. that's what I grew up on pretty much. And of all six of us, I have five siblings, we are all foodies now. We, mm-hmm. we all have this passion for food and where it comes from, how to make it better. And I thought about why that is. And I, I think that we have an intrinsic desire to feed ourselves and to have the control and understanding and so I've tried to give that to my kids. Um, but, you know, they'll probably eat Stouffer's lasagna <laughs> when they grow up.
0: <laughs> Maybe it'll alternate by generation, right? That's right. Uh, part of a reason, <clears throat> one reason, phrase it that way, to make your own food is is to make it more nutritious, right? We, Absolutely. We have a, a part of our culture in America is is processed food.
2: Yeah. And, in fact, um, I'm, I'm a big fan of both Michael Pollan and um, Mark Bittman who are food advocates. And recently, um, I just read an article about that everyone has the right to nutritious, affordable, and sustainable food. And the way to make that happen is to get back into the kitchen, to understand um, the ingredients. And when you understand the ingredients, you're going to choose higher quality ingredients. person who's you know plopping it into a plastic dish for you just doesn't have the same um, care that you will and to um, ask how it's made and you're you're not going to put as many um, chemicals in it because you don't need it to rest on a store shelf for two months before you eat it and you're just not going to eat as much junk food sure once in a while you'll cook fries at home But you won't cook fries five times in a week. You just won't. It's too hard. It's too messy. Cooking just empowers you to eat healthier. It's a natural outcome of of producing food at your home. And when you eat as a family, you become a stronger family. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of science Mm -hmm. behind that.
0: That segues into what I was going to ask you, and that is time. You know, we're busy. Um, so I was going to ask you, can you fit these principles into a short amount of time, but maybe maybe you'll tell me it's better to slow down. And-
2: well, you may have heard of the slow food movement, mm-hmm. which emphasizes, you know, we, we try and be so efficient and energetic, but we really do have to put a priority on food and eating. We have to take the time to cook it, understand it, enjoy it, and share it with our family. And there's no shortcut for that, and the only shortcut is handing it over to someone else to do. They're just not going to do it as good as you do.
0: Mm-hmm. So. Do you have, uh, do you have uh, I guess you you would suggest Michael Pollan's books, Mark Bittman's books. What uh, What are yeah. the resources? Uh?
2: So, I I'm not a um, I'm more about enjoying food than advocating for a certain type mm-hmm. of eating. I've I've stepped back from the advo- advocating because. I just find so much joy. You know, I eat Cheetos sometimes. I do. (laughs) But there are a lot of great resources out there if you're interested in knowing more about the slow food movement and um, how to eat better. But really, I think the most important step for me and the first step is to enjoy your own food Mm -hmm. and to think about why you enjoy it, where it comes from, how it's made, and how to make it better. Hmm. And I think once when I do that, I end up going to the gardeners market here in Cash Valley or thinking about rather than buying a product in the store thinking about how I could make it at home. And and I find that tremendously interesting and empowering. Hmm. And that's what most of my commentaries are about is that hmm. experience.
0: So uh, tell me, what uh, what are the first few First couple of commentaries is going to be about. We're we're going to hear your first one up next.
2: Yeah. So I have two commentaries in the works. One is about um, how to make meat tender. These are very simple principles that you have to learn. And unfortunately, it took me a long time to learn. How do you get a tender piece of meat? And how do you make it good? And what is the science behind that? Hmm. And the second one is about tomatoes. It's about how we classify foods um, into fruit and vegetables and why we make that classification and what sense it makes. And it's kind of fun.
0: Well, we'll be looking forward to this. Very pleased to have you on board as a commentator here at Utah Public Radio, Lail Gilbert, a Logan resident. And uh, you'll be hearing her comments, uh, commentaries on uh, food uh, during Access Utah. Uh, mostly on Wednesdays, I think. So, Layle Gilbert, thank you so much.
2: I'm so glad to be here. Appreciate it. Next up is Bread and Butter, a culinary chronicle with Lael Gilbert. For a recent anniversary, my husband and I headed to one of our favorite eating spots in Cache Valley. The Elements Restaurant has all the fundamentals to make an evening on the town really special for folks like us. Waiters who bring you stuff, someone to do the dishes— and a complete lack of children using breadsticks as lightsabers. You can see why we like this place. They also have a menu heavy on animal-based proteins. For my husband, that's something of an imperative. We were served two excellent entrees, a New York steak with a balsamic reduction, and a beautiful roasted tenderloin that had a chocolate brown crust on the outside, the inside tender enough to cut with the side of your fork. They were both delicious beefy and savory, with all the warm satisfaction that biting through a velvety mouthful of meat can give you on a cold winter's day, I began to wonder, how exactly do they get meat to be this tender? I had some free time after dinner, since I wasn't doing dishes, and decided to do some research. The answer to tender meat, it turns out, is to either cook it for a long, long time, or not to cook it for very long. Confused? I was too. It comes down to this. All meat, be it beef, pork, lamb, or chicken, consists of muscle, connective tissue, and fat. Most of what you see when you look at a slab of meat is the soft, dense muscle. Connective tissue is the broad term for the stuff that holds the muscle together. Cuts of meat are inherently tough or tender. A chef's job is to know which and to choose her cooking method accordingly. My husband's New York steak, also called a strip steak, was a tender cut. It's a lesser used muscle with little connective tissue. All it needed in the kitchen was to be heated long enough to be safe to eat and to develop a bit of flavor on the outside. T-bone steak, porterhouse steak, and tri-tip are examples of tender cuts. The more you cook muscle, the more the proteins get tough and dry out. But here comes the paradox. The longer you cook connective tissue, the more it softens and becomes edible. The muscle part of meat tends to have the best texture between 120 degrees and 160 degrees Fahrenheit. But the connective tissue doesn't even start to soften until 160, and it needs to reach 200 to completely break down. If you have a tough cut of meat, one that has a lot of connective tissue, the trick is to break down the ligaments, tendons, and collagen membranes without heating the muscle into jerky. Chuck, brisket, and rump are cuts of beef with more connective tissue and a tougher texture, but these cuts also have a lot of flavor. The best method to make them tender and to bring out the flavor is to start by browning the meat and then roasting or braising it over a low temperature for a long time. This is what made my roasted tenderloin so tasty. Contrary to popular opinion, browning or searing doesn't seal in meats juices. It does, however, help it to develop a deep and complex flavor as sugars and proteins react under high temperatures. When cooked low and slow, connective tissue dissolves into gelatin, which allows the meat fibers to separate. Fat melts and helps the meat be succulent, tender, and moist. But to keep the muscle tender and still kill the microorganisms, you have to maintain an important balance. A simmer between 180 and 190 is ideal. So to recap, if you have a tender piece of meat, cook it on high heat for a short time. If you have a tough piece of meat, brown the outside for flavor, then cook it for a long time at a low temperature, but not too long. If that isn't clear, stop by your favorite restaurant and let an expert do the job and the dishes. This is Lael Gilbert for Bread and Butter.
0: Oh well, thanks to Lael Gilbert, and we welcome her on board as a new UPR commentator. You'll be hearing her commentaries on food in Access, Utah. And our thanks to Matt Lewis as well. Thanks for listening to Access Utah today. Coming up tomorrow, plural marriage is the next frontier of North American marriage law and possibly the next civil rights battlefield. So say the editors of a new volume called The Polygamy Question. We'll be talking with Janet Bennion and Lisa Fishman jaffe tomorrow on Access Utah. Hope you'll join us then.
3: Commentator Gina Wickwar. At least once a year, I have to rant about something. Usually it's about solicitation letters from all those do-good-but-necessary 501c3 organizations who plead for money or ask you to make out your will to them or, well, you get the drift. Did I mention their solicitations are accompanied by free tote bags, reams of sticky return address labels, sample Christmas, birthday, anniversary, or sympathy cards? Well, this rant isn't about them. It's about something just as sneaky and hard to take, though. It's about how women are portrayed in TV commercials that are directed to uh, an older audience. Now, young listeners may not believe this to be an issue, but if you are a senior-ish kind of female person, your ears have already perked up and you're ready to listen. Let's start with this fact. These kinds of commercials have a pretty straightforward theme. An older woman whether married, usually, or not, needs, rather, must have certain elderly-aimed liquids, face creams, fruits, vitamins, insurance, laptops, or telephones to allow her to cope with today's complex world. My favorite TV example goes like this. An older couple sitting on a porch swing always a porch swing or hammock, tells us dunderheads that now is the time to sell our term life insurance. Their children are over 40, which we assume must mean their past college enrollment days. So they've sold their term insurance policy, and now those premium dollars can be used for some bucket list frivolity, or pause, for helping them ease into old age. They both nod sagaciously at one another, pleased with their financial management scheme. The last scene is of the wife wearing a wide straw sun hat, holding clippers in her garden-gloved hand, clipping away and placing long stem flowers into a basket. She looks for all the world as if that term life insurance policy sale has placed her life into rose garden tranquility. Another favorite TV example, an older woman lies arm across forehead on her couch, the sunny and inviting outdoor scene through billowing curtains. Her lassitude, we learn as she visits her doctor in the following scene, is because she lacks protein. Oh my. Now that she's learned of her disease, her refrigerator is stocked full of bottles of Ensure. "'Her fruits and vegetables and hot dogs and muffins "'also happen to speak. "'The healthier inhabitants, like the tomatoes and celery, "'do their job and kick the hot dogs, pastries, "'and cans of Coke off the refrigerated island. "'Now only the healthy food and drink are available "'to our protein-deficient woman of the house. "'She is now full of vim and vigor and is, sigh, "'shown walking through her garden, "'wearing a wide straw sun hat, "'clipping roses to put in her basket.' My assumption at this juncture is that the TV budget for sun hats and clippers is small, and these scene fillers have to be shared. Just to fortify my point here, I will cite one more example. In this ad, the older woman is dejected, despondent, and basically frustrated. Why, you ask? Well, she wants to call her daughter, but she can't see the numbers on her phone, nor can she hear very well when the call finally goes through. The solution to such a dilemma? A cricket. Or uh, was it a grasshopper phone? Her children buy her one. It has large numbers and adjustable voice levels. And wow, in the next scene, the older woman is, yeah, you got it, walking in her garden wearing a wide straw sun hat, carrying a flower basket, and holding a phone to her ear. She's chatting away with her granddaughter. And from her, hi, sweetie, greeting to her, love you too, goodbye, you can tell that Cricket has made her life full and rich once again. I know I'm being a bit picky. After all, I am a woman of a certain age myself. But the last time I was wandering around my backyard with a straw basket and a straw sun hat was, well, well, it was like never. Mainly, it's because though I am a flower lover, I'm a dismal gardener. And I've never been too swift about the need for those sun hats. This is Gina Wickwar.
0: This is Science by the Slice. When discussing how one species evolved into two or more distinct species, scientists often surmise the uplift of mountains, which split populations of plants and animals, was a contributing factor. Not so fast, says USU entomologist James Pitts. You might expect this of desert species, where the terrain is typically isolated by mountain ranges. But for some organisms, he says, evidence points to glaciations that occurred during the Ice Age. A foremost scholar of wasps known as velvet ants, Pitts compared molecular data from modern-day ants with data collected from fossils and says the findings support the idea that relatively recent glacial action, rather than ancient mountain formation, led to new species.
3: This segment of Science by the Slice is brought to you by the USU College of Science, offering degree programs in the sciences and mathematics. Details at usu.edu slash science.
0: Living on Earth is coming right up. Hope you'll stay tuned.